This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Hello, welcome to Books and Nachos, the Venganza media podcast about all things in print. I am your host, Stuart in L.A., and I have been reading a lot about aliens lately. Thanks in large part to our sister podcast, NowPlayingPodcast.com. I've been reading complimentary works to our donation series for the movies we've been watching, Sigourney Weaver Aliens. I read a trilogy of comic books and novelizations that sort of tied into the James Cameron universe and expanded on it in a different direction. And then for an extra special donation at Now Playing, we covered E.T. the Extraterrestrial over here at Books and Nachos last week. I read The Book of the Green Planet, which is a novel-only sequel to the E.T. movie adventure. Well, it makes sense that we end up here with the granddaddy of really all alien invasion Earth stories, the 1898 H.G. Wells epic, The War of the Worlds. It's kind of astounding how long a shadow this little novel has produced over the 20th century. When you think about it, there's no aspect of media that didn't have an adaptation. I mean, in the 30s, Orson Welles made a radio play based on it, and it scared the country. There were people that believed that the radio broadcast was real and hid and did some crazy things. It was quite notorious. In the 50s, Hollywood made a splashy adaptation that sort of was a way of talking about the communism invasion. 70s, there was a rock album. 80s, there was a TV show. 90s, there were video games. And even in our current decade, as we start into the next century, it remains relevant. A filmmaker no less established than Steven Spielberg chose to remake it with Tom Cruise as a way of talking about our current war on terror. So it continues to be relevant 110 years beyond its initial publication. That's quite a feat. But I'm not here today to talk about those adaptations. If you want to hear my thoughts on those, they are going to be a part of our War of the World show, just released at NowPlayingPodcast.com. $25 donation, and you can hear all of these alien movie podcasts I've been talking about. What I want to focus here today at Books and Nachos is the source material. Why is War of the Worlds such an epic? Why has it had this lasting impact? For such a major literary accomplishment, it's actually a very quick read. There's only 182 pages to the thing. It's quite slender, and it's broken down essentially into two parts. Part 1 documents a meteor shower that brings alien cylinders down upon the English countryside. And then in the second shorter part, 2, there is really an opportunity to ponder the future of humanity once it's been dominated by the Martians that sprang from those cylinders. And we experience all of this in first person from a narrator that, quite frankly, we never really get to know that well. I'm not sure what I could tell you about our main character, other than he is a married Englishman living on the outskirts of London who fancies himself as a writer of speculative philosophy. And in fact, he was in the process of composing an essay about ethics in our future civilization when the first cylinder came crashing down into his neighborhood. I guess I kind of just see this guy as a stand-in for the author of War of the Worlds, H.G. Wells, who was also a writer and a scientist. He was a student of Darwinian theory. He had taught science for many years. And by this point in his career, he had already published many of the works that would establish him as a science fiction great. 
Time Machine, Invisible Man, The Island of Dr. Moreau, already published by the time he gets to War of the Worlds. And Wells had also published a nonfiction piece exploring the possibilities about what Mars was like, and in particular, if there was life on Mars, using the tools that were available, which were mostly astronomy and speculation. Like I said, he is a speculative philosopher. I think that maybe Wells saw himself in that role as well, as he composed his theory about what life on Mars might be like, first in nonfiction, and then here on the page in this prose, War of the Worlds. So this is really an intellectual's take on alien invasion. He's going to actually frame it in terms of Darwinian evolutionary theory. And he's also talking about it in past tense. It's probably a way of comforting the reader, lest they get too worked up about it. It was originally serialized in a newspaper. Who knows? Somebody could have read it and believe that it was something that was really happening. A first-person account. They let you know almost in every chapter of the story that this is something that has happened, not that is happening. On one hand, that kind of hurts it as a suspense piece. We know how this is going to end. We know that it's not going to end with the Martians winning. But on the other hand, it's really neat because our narrator has had the opportunity, post-attack, to go through the rubble, to look at the alien ships and learn more that he would never know while it was going on, to actually study autopsies of the Martian bodies. Well, I think he likes to write for the common man, and he's definitely good with writing flowery prose that's simple and effective. But I don't think of this as necessarily a page-turner. This isn't about getting caught up in the suspense of the battle. The whole thing really comes off more as a lecture, as a think piece. We know that we're not going to be wiped out, but we also know we need to learn a harsh lesson here about evolutionary theory. And think about it. The aliens choose to attack us at the heart of the British Empire. At this point in history, England kind of ran the show. At the height of the Industrial Age, mankind must have thought that it owned the planet, and England must have thought that it ran mankind. So you're dealing with the height of evolutionary powers of the age when this story was published. I think the real neat, nifty trick of it is how Wells is able to spin it in an evolutionary perspective so that we're now no longer at the top of the food chain, as it were. There's something that is our intellectual and technological superior coming down to wipe us out. Or, if not wipe us out, at least put us in our place. The narrator is even actually kind of sympathetic towards the Martian. I mean, he goes so far to say, early in the story, let's not judge him too hard, because this is what we did to the dodo, that extinct bird, or This is what we did to Tasmanians. I mean, there is a long history of man being cruel to animals and other man, and now we're reaping what we're sowing. And I think that's what really makes this story unique and powerful, particularly at that time. But really, it's it's applicable at any time. It's a story about pride leading us into false conclusions about our role in the universe. So Wells really constructs a story that's about setting our ideas about why we've come to dominate the planet in a more modest way. You know, let's not get too ahead of ourselves. There's always some other being out there that could come down and let us know we're not number one. I really like the scientific ideas that are here in the novel. I think it's its strongest asset, and one that doesn't usually get translated into all of the other adaptations I've talked about, like the movies and the TV shows. Those seem to want to focus on the actions. You know, let's see some alien tripods blow stuff up. 
that works in the movie, but here in the book, the stuff that really gets you is to think about what brought Mars to treat us this way. You know, it's seen as a planet that is older than Earth because it exists further out from the sun than Earth, and it has run through its resources. That Mars perhaps was just like Earth at some point, with plentiful forests and water and all of that, they've run out. That's something that mankind right now is having to think about with water shortages and runs on amenities. We could become what Mars is at the start of this story. And so they have come to Earth as a way of staying alive. And they don't think of us necessarily as an enemy. They see us as ants, you know, something to fumigate, but not necessarily something equal. But they don't want to just kill us. They actually need us alive. Martians are actually from an anatomical standpoint, much more simple than human beings. They don't have a lot of our attributes. They don't have a nose. They don't have a digestive system. They don't eat, as it were. They're pretty much all cranium with some tentacles. And what they do to sustain themselves is inject themselves with blood. Our blood will do. They already had a species of humanoid that they've kind of run through. The narrator goes through their ship at some point and finds carcasses and skeletons of things that are like Earthlings that were brought from Mars to snack on until they could feast on us. So when the Martians first come out of the cylinders, they are trying to destroy our defenses and to kill us. You know, they have a lot of technology that can put us down, but they don't want to kill all of us. Now, they're at a disadvantage when they get to Earth because the gravitational pull is so much stronger here than it is on their original planet. They can't really move around that much. They're pretty much confined to the craters in which they crash in. But because they are smarter and more technologically advanced, they have machines that are going to cart them around. And it's really what they think of as their bodies. The Martians are all head, and their bodies are mechanical. They're tripods. They come out of the cylinders, as one spectator calls, boilers on stilts like giant skyscrapers traipsing around with tentacles that they use to grab the humans. And they have a lot of other cool tricks, too. They have a heat ray that will melt you. They have cylinders of black smoke that, when released, fumigate and kill anything that breathes it. They also have a rapidly growing plant life, a red weed that sort of sprouts up and kind of gums up the works and makes it difficult for people to get around and get away. It isn't long before all of civilization is sort of collapsing in the area once the Martians start moving in the tripods. And the war that they're engaging here would have been unheard of to English society. You know, there's a sense of social decorum. Even in battle, there are rules of engagement. You don't fight without rules at this point in history. But the way that the Martians engage them, it's, again, it's almost like fumigating ants. They don't really have a consideration. They're so intelligent that it sort of made them emotionally divorced from morality. And a war without morals is a powerful concept and a scary one, I would think, at the beginning of the 20th century. Coming at the end of the 20th century, where we've seen a lot of world wars, it may be less surprising. It's almost prescient how H.G. Wells is able to conceive of 20th century battle before it's even invented. Before there is mustard gas released in World War I, he's having creatures just gassing anything in its path. Before there are rockets or lasers or anything that can really destroy on the mass level, these aliens are doing that. I mean, I think that 
part of the thrill of War of the Worlds is how it was able to conceive, maybe even invent, modern warfare. I know that when H.D. Wells died towards the end of World War II, he was having similar thoughts. He was wondering, what has I wrought? What fiction has become reality? It was traumatic and surprising how forward-thinking his ideas here are. But again, I want to stress, the real story here is with a, a narrator that's a philosopher, and his adventures are rather limited. He recognizes rather early when the heat rays are going off that he needs to get his wife out of the neighborhood, and he takes her by horse and buggy to a neighboring town, and when he's coming back to his home, I presume to get more things or just to see what the state of things are, that's when the tripods really come out and dominate, and he is confined for much of the story to a house with his only other companion, a refugee that's a religious figure. He's a curate. And the narrator kind of wryly observes how quickly that this man of religion has fallen apart. It doesn't take him long to turn apocalyptic, really, feeling like this is the end. This is Armageddon. This is no reason to exist on Earth anymore. This is man's last day. And the narrator finds it difficult that he has gone so dark that he asks the question, what good is religion if it collapses under calamity? But that's what's happened. And the curate goes so insane that he actually starts ranting at the top of his lungs. And that's a danger. That could expose them to Martian probes. Eventually, the narrator has to hide in the basement and the mad curate is dragged away and sucked of blood. And eventually the narrator gets out of that house and continues on. I think it's interesting to note that he gets a bit fatalistic himself, not as fatalistic as the religious man, but he presumes that his wife is already dead by the time he is on the road. He does not go to try and rescue her or even find out what happened to her. And I think that's a big difference from, say, the Spielberg movie, where the whole thrust of that story is about Tom Cruise trying to find his wife and getting his kids home. It's the only thing that keeps him going. Here, the man presumes, he actually says... I just hope that she's been hit by a heat ray and not drained of blood and eaten. That's where he's at. Instead, he's heading to London. He has a brother that lives there. And I think he really wants to see how a major metropolis might have handled this calamity. You know, if anybody were going to resist the aliens, it would have been London. He encounters one more important human character on the path to getting to London, a ex-military guy who... And this guy is rather smug. He's kind of satisfied that man is getting his comeuppance, and he sees it as a way of weeding out the populace. He feels like the lazy, the useless, the stupid, all of those people will be wiped out, and the intelligent ones, like himself, are going to find a means to survive. His whole idea of going on and continuing the species is to live within the sewers, that there's a whole underground infrastructure they can use as their new home, and that man will just become subterranean and live off of what's in the sewers. And for a while, the narrator indulges him. They play cards, and he enjoys company, but he ultimately sees this as a very greedy and short-sighted way of living, that he would rather go out and be executed trying to find survivors and unite humanity rather than living like, you know, I guess a sewer rat is really this existence that this man is posing as the future of mankind. So he leaves him behind too. But not before hearing a very troubling rumor that the Martians are working now on a machine that will allow them to fly. And it's one of the ideas in the book that I don't see adapted very often, if ever. I can't ever recall seeing. But they have little mechanical helpers, droids, if you will, these spidery robots that are sort of their building machines. 
Martians themselves, because they're weighed down by gravity and really don't have the appendages to really work well with tools, have robots building all of their machines. And they're these spidery cyborg creatures. They're actually called handling machines that are kind of doing all of the grunt work and the ones that are building and repairing tripods. And the narrator's pretty convinced that if they do in fact build the flying machines, it's all over and that nothing will be able to keep them from going beyond the borders of London, of England, conquering the world. So by the time he gets to London and is wading through the redweed, he's pretty sure that these are man's last days. But the redweed is dying, and with it are the invaders. This is something that I think every adaptation comes to bring into the work, no matter what changes they have about the Martian ship, or I've seen variations on all the different story elements, but it does always come down to the Martians are defeated, not by anything that the Londoners have done, but because they did not anticipate microorganisms. They are undone by our ecosystem. Mars did not have bacteria. They did not live in our world. They did not breathe and eat our resources, and thus they were ill-prepared for all of the tiny things they couldn't see in them that they've been consuming. So within the matter of a month, they've gone from wrecking havoc to tripods falling over and Martians laying dead in the street while dogs rip them apart. And they're poisoned and dead. And the narrator observes they don't even know enough about decomposition to bury their dead. They just There's no concept in their world of things happening on a microscopic level. The narrator goes on for several pages at the end about what all of this means, but I think it can best be summed up in this passage. I'll just go ahead and read it to you now. But there are no bacteria in Mars. And directly these invaders arrived, directly they drank and fed, our microscopic allies began to work their overthrow. Already, when I watched them, they were irrevocably doomed, dying and rotting even as they went to and fro. It was inevitable. By the toll of a billion deaths, man has bought his birthright of the earth, and it is his against all comers. It would still be his, were the Martians ten times as mighty, for neither do men live nor die in vain. I mean, what Wells is really talking about here is the world is ours not because we're powerful and smart or, or any of our attributes. It's because we are of the world. It is us. We own it because there is no difference. We have fought the evolutionary fight to be here and to share it with all of its resources. There's no shortcuts. The Martians try to jump that and just arrive in a matter of days and do what we did in all of these eons. And no, how, and no matter how smart or powerful the Martians are, they can't beat evolution. They might beat us, but they can't beat evolution. And that's ultimately, I think, the message. I think it's a beautiful idea, and I think it's an idea that works best here in the novel, better than it ever really does play out in all of the adaptations. I think it feels like a cheat sometimes in the movies. You want to see a hero beat the aliens, not germs. That's the kind of conceit that works best in a philosophical way, so it works best here in this philosophical novel. And I'm not saying that there aren't some good old action moments here. I think the best action bits are actually relegated to the narrator's brother. He eventually gets the story of what the brother did in London and how they evacuated and 
got on a ship and saw tripods being fought by battleships. And there's all this kind of exciting stuff that they do put in the movies. The action is here. But again, it's being conveyed by someone who's telling you what happened to their brother in the past. That's not exactly a action-packed standpoint. That's not going to get you into the story. It's twice removed at that point. And so, again, I stress, this is a novel of ideas. It is a novel that appeals to the intellect more than the senses. Philosophy over base fear-mongering. So, you know, I think there's room for everything here. I think that there's a place for the movies and what they do. Hollywood can blow things up better, maybe, than this novel can from 1898. But it really is never going to be more eloquent than Wells is as he puts forth the idea that, yes, man is great. And yes, man has used technology and his intellect to dominate and show his superiority over the earth. But just because we've evolutionarily advanced to this degree doesn't mean that we ought to be arrogant or warmongering. We ought to recognize our place in the ecosystem and realize we are a part of it. The work asks us to be preservers of our world so that it can continue to preserve us from things greater than ourselves. And I'm not sure in the hundreds of years of human history that are to come that we will watch the Spielberg movies or return to the Orson Welles radio play. But I'm pretty confident that this work that H.G. Wells has put down to paper will survive. Now, with the evolutionary turning of our publishing industry, maybe it won't be a book, but the ideas, the concept, the prose that's written here, the poetry, will survive. I think this one really is a classic that deserves its status. And with this strong recommend, I'm going to close the book on Aliens for now. I don't think we're going to get any better than that for now, so I'm going to start reading something a little more grounded to Earth. Maybe a little bit sleazier, too. In two months' time, our sister podcast now playing is going to be covering the movies of James Bond. So I figured let's take the opportunity here at Books and Nachos to go through the original works from the man that invented him. I'll be covering Ian Fleming's original James Bond stories. We'll be starting in publication order, which means that it won't connect with what Now Playing is doing. The first movie was Dr. No. The first book was Casino Royale. We'll be going through in publication order from Casino Royale all the way through the last posthumously published Octopussy, everything that Ian Fleming wrote about James Bond, including some short stories that were never even made into movies. So in two months, James Bond, you know what your mission's going to be? Enjoy that time off. I know I will. But keep reading. Support your local bookstores. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved.